Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. Guys, it is going to be a great day of worship. We are so thankful that all of you are here today. We're thankful that you are watching from wherever you are right now. But today we have a special guest with us in the room, or many special guests, the Mississippi College girls volleyball team, ladies volleyball team, women's volleyball team. We are so thankful that you are here today. Church family, can we give them a warm welcome? Thank you so much for being here today. I know each and every one of those looks, it's the look that my wife gives me when I call her out and she didn't want to be called out, so I am so sorry for doing that, but we are so thankful all of you are here today. We are honored uh, to, to have you as our guest this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, would you open to Luke chapter 9? Luke 9 is part of the passage that you heard read this morning, uh, and, and where we are is we are in week two of the home series. Uh, this is a series that, that really, it, it's part of what we do every year around this time, usually in the month of August, um, to, to remember who we are and what we are called to do. Uh, as, as we look today, uh, we, we're trying to sort out, we are trying to figure out a look inside of our church. So maybe you're new today, or maybe you've been here all 70 years of our existence. The goal is still the same. Who are we as a church? What are we committed to do as a church? How will we plan to live out our calling in this world? And what are the expectations that we have for members and for ministers here at this, this church family? My prayer is that in everything that we say and do over these four weeks together, whether it's the mission statement or the values or the strategy or the outcomes, that you will see that we are a church that is devoted to our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are committed to advancing his kingdom and that we love this book. Uh, I know that you can go to, to other churches, and here's what I would hope would be true, that what we are going to say about Broadmoor isn't going to be unique to only Broadmoor. My, my hope is that wherever you go in the world to a church that worships the risen Savior and believes this book, that everything you hear today and really over these four weeks is going to be true wherever you go. We believe that this is the call, not just for Christians at Broadmoor, but this is the call for people who have submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're visiting with us today and you are visiting uh, one of your family members or you're just here, look, this should be true of you if you have confessed Christ to be king. Uh, and if you are on the cradle roll here and you've been here 60, 70 years, then this is also to be true of you. But back to the questions that we are answering. Last week, we looked at two questions. The questions were, what will we do and who will we be? Well, we, we gave you or reminded you of the mission statement of the church, that we are going to be a united family of faith, joining Jesus on his mission for the glory of God and the good of our communities. And that is our mission. That, that is something that we believe is born out of the scriptures of, of the Great Commission uh, and then, then the fulfillment of that in Acts 1-8, that whenever the Holy Spirit brings power onto us, we will give good and faithful witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But today we ask a different question. Today's question we are looking at is, why do we live out the mission? And what are the values that as a church we are going to be running behind? And we're going to turn to the Word of God to get the heart of those answers. So if you have your Bibles and you are in Luke chapter 9, uh, I, I, we're going to start in verse 18, 
But I want to give you kind of some awareness of where we are in Scripture. Because, you know, whenever you kind of drop in in the middle, you need context to, to rightly understand it and to, to rightly apply it to your life. And so we, we find ourselves, honestly, in one of the most amazing passages of Scripture in chapter 9 of Luke. And here's why. Luke is addressing the question that, that probably people since Christ was born, and no doubt even still today just as much, are asking, here's the question, who is Jesus? Like, like who, who is this man? And so it starts, if you, if you go back and you read the beginning of chapter 9 of Luke, you're going to see this, this guy named King Herod. Herod was the guy, if you remember, that, that had John the baptizer beheaded. And so what, what, what Herod is, is, is quoted as saying in, in, in verse 9 is this, who is this man whom I hear so much about? Because he said, look, I've already killed John. I, I, thought we put, I thought we put this uprising to rest. Who is this man that I'm hearing about? And we don't know what he's heard. We can assume because by this time, Jesus has done many miracles. By this time, Jesus is, is casting out demons and he's raising the dead and he's making the blind see and the deaf hear. He, he's, he's doing these things. Again, not, not for everybody, but, but for some. And, and so his fame is beginning to grow. So, so Herod asked the question, and to be clear, he's not asking so he can have a relationship with it. Matter of fact, if you continue reading in chapter 9, uh, it's going to be clear that Herod says, I want to meet with him. He wants to kill him. And then we're going to find where we are today in our, in our sermon text of, of Peter's confession and we believe this not just to be what Peter said, although he gets the credit because he's the one quoted as saying it. He's the spokesperson for the group of disciples. So, so the, the confession of who Christ is, and I'm going to tell you why that's really important in just a second. And then it ends with this really crescendoing moment. If you go a little bit further, a little bit past where we're going to, to end today, and you go to the transfiguration of Jesus. So he takes just a couple of his disciples, and he goes up to the top of the mountain and as he's there, he transfigures. He, he allows them, the earthly disciples, to see really his heavenly self. And then all of a sudden, there's this great cloud that comes up, and they're fearful as they walk into the cloud. And as they're in there, they hear this voice from heaven speaking and says, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Now, as I've read this probably 40 times this week, get ready for this sermon, I don't know why, but James Earl Jones said that voice a hundred times. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I've tried to give it other voices. Nothing else fits. So if we, when we get to heaven and James Earl Jones is not, that voice is not coming out of God the Father. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to be happy to be there. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being honest. I, I, in my head, it is ringing right now. Mufasa, James Earl, we're there. Okay, we're good. But back to Peter's confession. What Peter says will set the stage for what Jesus says to him and all other disciples, including us, so that's why this passage is so important, for the rest of their and our lives. So go back to Luke 9, verse 18, and that's where we pick up. Now it happened 
that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Already, that, that sentence structure sounds strange. How could it be praying alone and the disciples be with him? Well, he is, he's in private prayer. He is, he is sitting there praying to the Father. He's not praying with the disciples. They aren't, they aren't in group prayer where somebody is voicing one and somebody else is agreeing in prayer. Jesus is, is evidently praying. Just he and the Father are communicating and the disciples are nearby. That's what that, that line is speaking to. And then he asked them. So Jesus turns from his prayer and he asks the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old have risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. All right, this is huge right here. Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? Peter's response really for the whole group here is, you are God's promised Messiah. So, so whenever, whenever you hear the word Christ, that is, that is, that is the, the Greek understanding of the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay, so, so whenever, whenever we say Jesus Christ, it is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the promised one, Jesus the chosen one. And so what we have here is Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the promised one of God. So up until this moment in history, only God, the angels, and demons believed him to be the Christ of God. It has never been recorded prior to this. Here's why that's really important. They had seen him do many, many miraculous things. Again, healing the sick, raising the dead, water into wine, walking on water, calming the sea, all of the things that are written about. And then according to John, there are so many more things that he did that weren't written down in these books because all the books of the world could not hold all that Christ has done. They knew him to be a special man and a miracle worker. The world wanted to see the next act in the Jesus show. But it's this moment that distinguishes the rest of history. It is the first confession that we have of a follower of Christ saying to Christ, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. Again, I can't understate the, the, the vast importance of, of that. So this confession was huge. It changed everything for the disciples in that moment and moving forward. But right after that watershed moment in history, Jesus turns and says something to his disciples that seemingly is strange. Here's what he says in verse 21. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. All right. If you're doing a, a movement and you're trying to grow things, the moment somebody views you as deity... That's usually the moment you, you kind of want to strike while that iron is hot. Hey, go, go and tell. Yes, yes. And so if you go back to other gospels, it's also in that moment that Jesus looks at Peter and he says, and on that confession, I'm going to build my church. Not Peter. Peter is not what the church is built on. It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he turns to him and says, hey, but don't tell anybody. 
And it's not just lightly and flippantly saying, hey, keep that to yourselves. It says he strictly charged them and commanded them, do not say a word. That is not how you start the kingdom movement. But evidently he was doing something. All right, so remember, up until this point in history, many other people were waiting on the Christ of God. They truly were. They were, they were waiting any day for him to show up because they believed that when the Christ of God came, that he would overthrow Rome, the oppressor, that he would get rid of the dirty Gentiles, that he would make Israel great again. Jesus said, that is not why I came. If people really knew that Jesus was the Christ here, they would take everything that they thought in their mind and in their heart and in their wisdom and in their knowledge, and they would try to make it happen. What's the it? Whatever they believed about him. They were operating in their own version of truth, and what Jesus says is they don't know the truth yet. The truth has not set them free yet, so don't tell them who I am just yet. Jesus tells his disciples it's not the time, but it is time for something. The Christ must, and he uses that word and it's strong, must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise implied the time will come to tell everyone but the time is not now and jesus looked at his disciples and and said something that would shape the rest of history jesus tells them about the cost of following him as the christ of god so it was different when they knew that he was just a miracle worker or a good teacher or a prominent rabbi but it's different now that they know who he is that god from heaven has revealed to them that he is indeed the christ all right the passage of scripture that we're about to walk through listen to me is one of those passages of scripture that whenever we read it it is easy for us to say amen yes that's right it's easy for us to teach it and say this is what you should do it's easy for me to preach it and say thus says the lord but let me be clear this passage it's much easier said than done but it must be done so as we hear these next few words, I want the weight of what Jesus is saying to sink in, in light of the confession of who Jesus is. So the disciples confessed, you are the Christ of God. So in view of that confession, here's what Jesus says to them. He, this is verse 23. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. To follow Christ, the Son of the living God, is to do three things. It is to deny self, to take up one's cross daily, and to follow Christ. All right. When we say that Jesus is Lord over all of our life, that should mean the totality of our life. That we give all that we are and all that we have to him. Our self is now a very distant second place to Christ's will for our life. So, so what it is to deny self, that, that we, we view Jesus 
as better than anything that we have, anything that we know, anything that we desire. And so we take what we desire in our own carnal flesh and we put it aside and then we say, God, I am yours. That is the denial of, of the carnal self. So when it says deny yourself, it is that denying of, of that carnal nature to put oneself on the throne room of your heart and to say someone else belongs there. Deny self. The second to take up the cross. Now remember when Jesus said this, he of course had not gone to the cross. So the cross, when he says this, means something different to us today than it did for them. So, so for example, uh, we, we won't do it, I don't want you to raise your hands here, but just imagine in a church service in central Mississippi, how many people in this room are wearing jewelry of a cross? Let's change it. In your homes, in your dorms, in your apartments, how many people have pictures or actual crosses on your wall? This is unheard of in the first century because the cross isn't beautiful yet. And so for Jesus to say, take up your cross, it's not like us saying, well, I, you know, I went to Hobby Lobby, they had a good sale on crosses, I picked them up, 30% off. That's what Jesus must have meant. No, this is something totally different. This is twofold. He is foreshadowing the type of death that he would die. Again, I don't think the disciples understand that in this moment. But secondly, he's making the cost of following him as Lord crystal clear to his disciples. The call to take up the cross to the disciples and the original readers would be understood as this. Marked daily as someone who rebelled against the powers of the world. Let me, let me say that again. The way that the first century disciples and the readers of this, 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 this letter, as it would be circulating across first century, would understand taking up your cross would mean being marked daily as someone who is rebelling against the powers of this world. The cross is a Roman crucifixion device that was supposed to be a deterrent against rebellion, and it was a good one. What would happen is somebody who would break the law or somebody who was rebelling against Rome's authority, they would take them and nail them to the cross and they would leave them there. While they lived, as they died, and then after they died, they would leave their bodies there. Why? Because they wanted everyone else to walk by and say, if you break the law, if you rebel against our authority, that's you. If you don't do what we're telling you to do, that's what you're going to get. To take up your cross daily is to be identified as a dead man or a dead woman. Once you take it up and put that cross beam on your back, there's no coming back from that. There's no undo it, there's no get away from it, nobody, nobody has ever survived the Roman crucifixion. It was something that was supposed to be identified that as you walked from where they put the beam on you to the place they were going to hang you, that you were a rebel. And as you got there, they would put you up and there was no help for you. You don't die quickly in a Roman crucifixion. It is a very long and drawn out process. It is uncomfortable. It is painful. And it only ends one way with you dying there. 
Nothing else matters when that cross is strapped to your back and you begin to walk to the place where they're going to put you up except where you are now and where you're going. So, with that view of cross in view, when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and you've got to take up your cross. Daily saying, I am no longer living for this world, but living for the life to come. That's what it means to take up your cross daily. And church, that has not changed in 2,000 years. So as I'm reading through this, and I shared with our staff this morning in prayer time, this is a lot. This is heavy for me. Because we live in a world where if we identify as a Christian, man, we, we celebrate that. But I think our world's quickly changing. And the question will become more important. Would you still identify as a follower of Christ? Would you still confess that he is Lord even if it was a long and painful and drawn-out process that only ended one way. So let's be clear. To deny self and to take up your cross is to consider your life on this side of eternity over, and now you're living for what's coming next. That is what we must do as a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the truth in the wager, okay? Look at verse 24 and following. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit himself? All right, so if, if you try to preserve your life, if, if, you're, if you're not willing to say this life is over and I'm living for the next, what Jesus is saying is you're going to lose both. Because you, person, whether you are a Christian or not, you were built for an eternity. The only thing that happened in our life is we were born with the sin nature that separated us from the love of God. But Christ, the Redeemer, has come, and that's what we get to see after the cross. And that's why when we go to Hobby Lobby and they're 30% off, we rack up. Because the picture of the cross is beautiful to us now because it's that thing that shows that, that it's an identifier that we belong to him. We are thankful for what our Lord did on our behalf on that piece of wood. But Jesus is clear with the disciples. If you try to save and preserve your life on this side, live for this day, you're going to lose it all. But if you walk away from it now, if you lose it now, for the sake of Christ, if you deny self and take up your cross and live for the world to come, because you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because you trust him to be who he says he is, your life will be saved, not just when you die, but right now moving forward. Here's the wager explaining the, the truth of eternity, two choices here. If you could have everything in this world, have anything, do anything, but you would lose yourself you would lose who you were created to be, who you are, who you desire yourself to be in the future, and the promise of the world to come. If you would lose all those things, but you can have your heart's desire right now, would you pick it? I mean, Josh, when you put it like that. Here's the, here's the other side of that. But you can give up this world right now, right here. 
Deny yourself as you are following Christ. Take up your cross daily as you are following Christ, and you will find salvation and restoration now and through eternity. You will receive the promise of the kingdom that is coming. What would you choose and why? All right, so the answer to that is, is really where we are going today. That is a really long setup, and I have five minutes left to lay in the plane. Here we go. The answer has to go back to what you say to Jesus' question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? If Jesus is not the Christ, the promised one of God, then this world is all there is. Sure, live for this world, live for now, because if he's not the Christ and you're sitting on the throne room of your heart and you believe that this is all there is, then why not live for the world? Get as much as you can, as fast as you can, to live in the way that you want because there's nothing else when this life is over. But if Jesus is the Christ of God, if he is the promised one, then he and all of his power and authority supersedes everything else on this side of eternity. He is the better portion. He is more than this world has to offer. He is our confession of hope and of life and joy and fulfillment. So, who do you say Jesus is? Verse 26. For whoever's ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. All right, so Jesus ends with a strange saying, right? If you don't trust me, if you don't, if you don't confess faith in me now, there is coming a day where it's too late. I've prayed all week and I'm praying now. You don't hear that as fear tactic or fear mongering. We cannot come to Christ out of fear of hell. We come to Christ out of beauty for him being the son of the living God. Because your fear of hell will only last until you forget how bad hell is, and then you start living for self again. But if you live for the beauty of Jesus Christ, that never fades away. That is the fuel that drives us as believers. And so, again, where we live and where we come from, my fear is that there are many of us that have been pulled to some sort of religious expression or confession out of fear of hell and not the beauty of the sun. And that's why your life is filled with starts and stops. You've only counted the cost to say, well, I don't want to burn and I don't want worms and I don't want all these bad things that the Bible talks about, so I guess I will say this prayer and hopefully that makes me right. But there's never any understanding of who Jesus is, the beauty that he is, the, the authority and the power that he holds and the grace that he extends. When we understand more and more day by day the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, It changes how we live, and it changes what we do. It changes our passions and desires for this world. Then we get to verse 27, a highly contested verse, probably since it was created and written. Verse 27, but I tell you the truth. There are some standing here that will not taste death until the kingdom, till they see the kingdom of God. All right, just quick here. 
The meaning of this verse has been debated, debated since Luke wrote it down. When was the gospel of Luke written, you may ask? We think, we think 85 to 95 AD, which is long after most of the apostles have died. So, so was he wrong? Was Jesus wrong in what he said? Or, or maybe is there just a misunderstanding? Because what it kind of sounds like is until the kingdom of God comes, these, these guys aren't going to die. So here's some thoughts on that. Did Jesus say the disciples would not die? No, he did not say that. Then what does the kingdom of God mean? Great question. Best thoughts? Resurrection or Pentecost? Or both? Because that is when the kingdom of God is beginning to usher in into this world. That is what made Pentecost so beautiful. That's what makes Easter so powerful. Church, if we confess Jesus as Christ, and we do, then we must spend this life now living for what's to come. As a church, we have committed to running behind a set of values that we believe that are going to help us do just that. So there'll be values on the screen, and I want you to understand them. Maybe if you have your, your, your handout that we made, uh, you can grab those in the lobby on your way out today. But here are values, just, just simple values that we believe allow us to live our lives now for the kingdom that's to come. First is we are going to submit ourselves to the Word of God. The Bible is good news of Jesus and the authority for all areas of our life because of its power to transform and shape us from the inside out. Second value, that we will pursue reconciliation. Just as we've been reconciled to God through Christ, we are called to be ambassadors of the grace and forgiveness and reconciliation that we've been shown. Bringing God's compassion and healing power into this broken world. That we will be disciple makers. That we will equip every generation to walk alongside others so they move from simply being or believing in Christ to being a mature disciple who makes disciples. Another value that we have is that we are going to be a church committed to running to the hurting. Our community actively looks to serve those struggling on any level, whether in the seat next to us here in this room or in the streets around us. We are not passive in serving others who are in need. Another value that we have is we are going to be a church that cultivates healthy relationships. When we live alongside fellow believers, we are able to know and be known, giving and receiving the encouragement necessary to live out our calling and witness in this world. And then finally, we will be a church that lives generously. We strive to be a community that models God's love through tangible expressions of generosity that bless people and bring glory to God. So back to the question of the day. Why do we live out the mission that stands before us? Why have we committed ourselves to running behind those values that you just heard and seen on the screens? Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why. Not, hear me out, this is important, not because of who we are as people. Not because we're good people. Not because we're kind-hearted. Not because that's just what good church folk do. If that's our motive, and sometimes that's my motive. I mean, why didn't you get angry today at the red light? 
because the preacher doesn't look great on the five o'clock news of road rage accident. I mean, it helped in the moment, but it's not long lasting. It's still the next part. The next time one of you cut me off again. The goal of what we do isn't because of who we are. That's not the fuel that makes us go. If that is our motive, we will run out of gas far too soon. Our motive has to be and always be Christ and Christ alone. Our worship team is going to come back up and we're going to move into a response time. I'm begging you, don't pack up and leave just yet. Because he is the Christ. If you confess that, like, like if you truly believe that, not, not like I confessed it, a part of a, a prayer that I prayed when I was little and I didn't know what I meant. No, no, like, like with the totality of your life, when you wake up in the morning and you're looking at your, your, your spouse and your kids and your job and, and your savings account and, and, and all the things that make up who you are, and you say, Jesus, this is all yours. Use it for your glory and use it for the good of everybody around me. I am yours. That's what it means to confess him as Christ. It does not mean that you said some statement that you think that, that, that incantation is going to somehow uh, eternally save you from some bad thing. Yeah, yeah, Josh, but doesn't the Bible say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? It does. There's a part that comes right after it. And you believe in your heart that God raised him on the third day. Put those two together. Who do you say Jesus is? If you do not say that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and your life does not show that to be true, then all we did was an empty religious act that has left us, listen, worse off than we ever were before because it gave us some false sense of security. But deep down inside, we know that there is something lacking in us because if all you have and all you take around with you is, well, I'm a Christian. How do you know? Because when I was seven, and that's it, and you're now 50, And there's no conviction of denying yourself. There's no conviction of, of taking up your cross and saying, I am not living for this world. I'm living for the world to come. If there's no conviction for those two things, the Bible would say we need to reevaluate what our confession meant. Peter believed it. Most of the other disciples that day believed it. There was one didn't. Enough about them. What about you? And if you sit here and you say, Josh, I hear you. Herod, Herod struggled with the question. Peter was evidently confident in his question, but right after that, he, he tried to try to manipulate the Lord and what he would do and wouldn't do. And, and the Lord, right after he said, I'm going to build my, my church on that confession, said, well, get behind me, Satan. Like we get that in the other gospels. But if you needed any more encouragement today, I want to remind you of what the father said about the son at the transfiguration and whatever voice you want to hear this in the truth is eternal Luke 9 35 and a voice came out of the cloud saying 
This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Period, end of story. So, what did he say? What has he called you to do? And what steps of obedience do you need to take to listen to him? That's the invitation today. I think that's a broad invitation. But I don't want to presume that I know what the Lord is doing in your life, but I do know he's doing something. Because I know far too many of us have only said words that somebody else told us to repeat a long time ago about who Jesus is. You may have even said the words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, but you never meant it in your heart. How do you know you never meant it? Because your life was never changed because of your belief. Going back, this is the last part, I promise. You know when preachers say that, you got 30 more minutes. He said, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. But there was a third one. What was it? Follow me. The call to be a Christian is not to say a prayer to get out of hell. The call to be a Christian is to follow your Savior wherever he leads to go. So, where are you? Have you confessed faith in Jesus Christ? And does your life prove what you said? I'm not advocating for a works-based salvation. You are not saved because of your good works, but you are saved to do good works. Your salvation, your profession, your confession of who he is should radically change how we live our life. We are marked now and through eternity as no longer living for this world, but we are living for the world to come. Church, it's time to see where we are. And if we're not where we want to be or where the Lord's called us to be, by God's grace, with breath in our bodies, there's still time for course correction. But these are the values that we as Broadmoor are going to run behind. I think they're otherworldly. I think they're outside of self. I believe it calls us every day to acknowledge he's the king and we're not every single day. So with that being said, I'd love to pray for us and we'll move into our invitation time. Father, I do thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it has been for me since I've begun to read this passage. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we understand that what you are calling us to is not a religious moment. You're not calling us to say a prayer alone. You're not calling us to say, well, I'm putting, a, I'm putting a stake down today, but that's the last time I'll ever revisit it. What you are calling us to is a life following you, but we will never follow you until we deny self and take up that cross. So help us, Father, where we are so frail and we can't do it, where, where, where the Spirit Inside of us, we, we desire, God, to love you and to follow you, but our flesh, our carnal flesh is so weak and it pulls us back. God, help us crucify ourselves. Take up that cross daily as we aim to follow you with all that we are. We know that we will fail and we are thankful for grace and mercy. So help us get back up and to keep going. All for your glory's sake and all for the good of the world that's around us. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?
That's a bold prayer. If more of him means less of us, then Lord, do what you want. Again, easy to say, harder to live out. I am so thankful for this church who wrestles with those deep and weighty things. I'm thankful to do life alongside of you. And, and as we attempt to, to, to serve the Lord Jesus and to, to advance the kingdom through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, I am honored to do that side by side with you. And so tonight, we have something really big that we've been praying for and something that you uh, know a lot about. But tonight's the night. If it's not on your calendar, we want you to wipe everything off your calendar and show back up for this thing. Tonight is where we unfold more information about the Shelter Initiative. That is our, our response to, to running to the hurting in our community through adoption and foster care and abortion support groups and, and, and taking care of, of mothers who, who have unexpected pregnancies or, or maybe they are expected, but they are just so overwhelmed in life right now. Church, we say we are pro-life. It's time to live pro-life. This is that. This, is, this isn't uh, the way. It is indeed a way. But we'd love for you to get more information on that by going to our church website tonight or clicking on that QR code with your phone in just a few moments. But tonight, back here in the venue, we'd love to have you there. Uh, hey, I love you. I'm thankful to do life with you. I believe the Lord is doing great and mighty and wonderful things here. And I'm just so honored to be a part of it. So if you would allow me the honor to pray for you as we are dismissed to go and change the world, let's go. Father, we do love you and we thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings. Father, I ask that as we live out these values in our life, that we will live for not this life, but the life that is coming. Help us stay focused when it's so easily distracting in this world. Father, I thank you, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to give to the ministry of this church, God, that we may be able to do more and more as you have called us to do. And so, Lord, I thank you for all in this room who give joyfully and willingly. But Lord, not just monetarily, but who are serving right now and who are gonna live this week uh, in, in a way, uh, in a posture of being a servant leader. So Lord Jesus, be with us as we go. Help us make much of your great name. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. I love you guys. Have a great week.